so they had you know 100 people on the team to come up with a plan to just uh, get rid of Julian Assange and get rid of WikiLeaks and get rid of this this sort of threat to their to their ceaseless power and uh, and and you know so what like how do you destroy somebody's character well it's either going to be um, yeah it's going to be some sort of sordid accusation um, that's how you bring down somebody so um, and and you know so accusing him of rape was uh, kind of the worst possible thing that they could think of I, I guess apart uh, I suppose there's one more worse thing but they they couldn't find any any way to sort of concoct that so Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're really delighted to be joined by award-winning film director Kim Staten, who's based in Australia. Kim has devoted nine years to the documentary industry. He's the founder and director of Films for Change, an educational enterprise that's been operating since 2014. And initially, Films for Change was a hybrid distributor, bringing live in-person cinema screenings of documentary films to 90, 90 cities across the world, including Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand, the UK and America. During the pandemic, Films for Change evolved into streaming with their platform, filmsforchange.stream, launching in May 2020. In 2021, Kim has finally put himself behind a camera and a pen and he lends his highly trained eye for subject interpretation and narrative to direct his first documentary. An ambitious project, The Trust Fall, includes eight animations and 23 interviews with with Kim directing, co-producing and writing the powerful narration for the film. This powerful film quickly won various awards and continues to be shown in festivals all around the world as it gears up for cinema release. And I've watched quite a few films about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks over the last week or so. And whilst most made me feel predominantly very angry, I think, Kim, the thing that was very striking about your film was it also made me feel deeply sad to the point that it moved me to tears. And so really delighted to have the chance to meet with you today to talk about it. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me, and and sorry for the teary experience. No, that's good. It's it, you know it's, it speaks to how emotionally powerful the film is. I think. Hi, Kim. Good to meet with you. Can you begin, perhaps, to tell us how you came to start films for change and what your driving motivation was behind that? Sure. Uh, well. Uh, from the age of 18 I've just been um, greatly influenced by documentaries Um, the first film that really opened my eyes is a a very famous documentary called Baraka which was uh, a montage of um, images and music uh, sort of a juxtaposition of beautiful nature shots and then suddenly changing to scenes from uh, industrial sort of modern life, um, pe- people on a crowded street or, or uh, baby chickens going down a conveyor belt into a into a grinder. Um, and it, it just really struck me, that film, and, and ever since then I've uh, always 
regularly uh, watch documentaries. And then in 2014, I was uh, doing various, uh, holding different kinds of events. And I, I just thought of documentaries as a way to bring people together with similar interests and then, and then to talk about the issues uh, in the film that, that we'd seen. And that, that's how Films for Change started. Uh, and, uh, and within a four or five years, we uh, great, just greatly expanded into cinema and, and showed many films um, and sometimes hundreds of screenings of um, really powerful films. Uh, and I, I've seen firsthand the impact of documentaries, how, how they can really completely change somebody's worldview and their choices and their lifestyle, especially with films that we've shown about um, plastic in the ocean, uh, how it impacts marine and bird life, uh, films about animal treatment and uh, films about human rights. Thank you. So as we've mentioned already, your first film, your latest film is, is about uh, WikiLeaks and uh, Julian Assange. Can you give us a brief description of who Julian Assange is and what the purpose of WikiLeaks is and was? I'm conscious that he's been detained for such a long time now that some some listeners may not even understand his uh, significance. Yeah, well, look at it. Um, a lot of people will say, they, they. I think most people nowadays have heard of him. Uh, they may not make the connection between Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. They might have heard of one or the other. Uh, and, and a lot of people will say, probably the majority of people say, I don't know much about it. I don't understand it. What is this about? But really, everybody should know. They should know because he is fighting for all of us. He's fighting for our ability to have a, a sense of what governments are doing, um, the crimes they're committing, and the state of things. Um, so in a nutshell, Julian Assange is an Australian publisher and journalist. He's an encryption expert. And in 2006, he developed this innovation. It was an, uh, an invention, in fact, uh, to solve this problem of how can a whistleblower be protected? Um, when we look back at uh, the late 60s, early 70s, we had the Vietnam War and, and this legendary whistleblower, Daniel Ellsberg, who released the Pentagon Papers, and he was just quickly prosecuted. Um, and uh, it's always been an issue that uh, whistleblowers uh, usually get in trouble, um, even though they're just telling the truth. They're just exposing other people's crimes. It's it's they never. That's what a whistleblower is: is somebody that blows the whistle on the crimes of someone else. Um, and so Julian's innovation was an incredible idea, which was let's protect the whistleblower, make mm -hmm. them uh, allow them to be anonymous. And, uh, and at the same time, the other part of it was the, the actual website, the WikiLeaks website, which was an electronic compendium of all of these leaks that anyone could view uh, from anywhere in the world. Um, but what sets it apart from other websites is that uh, he developed a way for the, um, the servers to be multiplied and uh, for people to have multiple copies all over the world so that Inevitably, the, the site is shut down. It's hacked by whoever, whoever WikiLeaks uh, has made angry and they will uh, attack the website and bring it down, but it will pop up uh, 
usually 24 hours or less later uh, on another surfer, server. So it is a library that, that can't be burnt or demolished or destroyed. Thank you. And, and, and why did you think another film was needed about uh, uh, Julian? Because there have been a number of films already. Did you think it, the profile needed raising again? That's a great question. Well, look, I've seen uh, most of the documentaries that have been made, and there's, there's more than a dozen, and some of them are excellent and uh, really well done. But, but what I noticed about them was they were all about the, the what and the when. So this compelling story, a uh, very complicated, very technical story, um, a legal story, all the many, many court cases and, and so on. Uh, but just just going through a chronological series of, of, of events, which is typical of that's pretty normal for documentaries and uh, following the story. And our idea, my, my partner and co-producer Natalia and I had the idea that we could make a film that was not about the what and the when, but about the why, because there's a really big why in all of this. Why has Julian been persecuted, treated? so harshly why is he still being detained uh what did he expose and what can we learn from that and uh and why uh haven't we solved this problem and and all the people that uh perpetrated these crimes that are that that wikileaks exposed why are they not being um prosecuted uh, and and uh and why are we in this state and why is uh, the press freedom um, eroding currently in the world? Um, why are things getting worse in that regard? So there's there's so many whys about it and, and the big issues that affect all of us. I also felt that uh, all these documentaries hadn't really put, gone into that because they're too busy just covering the story from, from go to woe. Thank you. I was watching a film just the other day called, I think it was called Shock and Awe, which was about the Second uh, Gulf uh, War. Uh, and, and really what it was highlighting was just how complicit most of the press are with the high levels of deceit and corruption that surrounded that uh, particular uh, episode. So your film does provide an overview of the the facts for for context, but you focus very much on Julian's personality, both in how he's depicted and how others see him. Why did you decide to take that that angle? Well, I, I wouldn't say that we focus on the personality, but but more about how he's been treated and uh, and the real story, um, uh, because there's. All of this smear, um, yeah, sure, with the, the smear side of things, uh, the defamation and the lies uh, about his character and about his actions, uh, we dismantle those. But we do that pretty uh, quickly in the in the second chapter. And then the third chapter is a quick recap just to bring people up to speed because we know that some people uh, don't know the story. So we cover that in, in another five minutes. Uh, the rest of the film is really about the extent of the treatment uh, that he's endured, what was the motivation, the, the vision and the, the goal of WikiLeaks? What, how, you know, where, where did that come from, that idea? Because it didn't just arrive. And, and what was some of the uh, sort of, what's the sort of ethos that Julian had 
what kind of principles are behind it. Uh, and yeah, and then going into all the detail about his um, terrible mistreatment and, uh, and some suggestions of what we can do about it. Um, we also touch on his family members, how it's affected his wife, his kids, his father, his brother, and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and we also go into, um, uh, the, the state of press freedom, the decline of press freedom in modern times and highlight how that's actually getting worse, not better. Thank you. Kim, you've got some fantastic participants in your, uh, film. Um, you've mentioned already Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers man, but you also talk with Tarek Ali, who's been fighting for human rights for as long as I can remember. Um, Nils Meltzer was a special reporter on torture for the UN. And John Pilger, who's, of course, got a fantastic reputation for the kind of documentary that we're talking about. How did you choose these people to interview and, and how easy was it for you to persuade them to, to come on? Well, uh, this campaign being as enormous as it is, uh, it, it, there's, there's just an excess of talent and brains and, and uh, visionary speakers and thinkers that are involved. So we really kind of spoilt for choice. Uh, it, it wasn't long before I started to sort of discover who were the main voices and uh, of course, I considered how well-spoken are they, um, how well do they come across on screen, even, um, you know, the, how clearly you can hear them, how clearly they speak. Uh, some, so various elements like that. Um, so, you know, some, we made a list of, of sort of uh, our wish list of people we'd like to approach and... Um, I, I, I thankfully I had a contact of another documentary who had uh, the film's called No Extradition, just a, a simple um, but but very nicely done documentary about the extradition case, and it, it kind of featured mostly John Shipton, um, Julian's father, and uh, so I was able to get in touch in John with John Shipton through that contact, um, and John said he'd be quite happy to be interviewed. And after I'd interviewed John, uh, I started to reach out to other people. Um, look, some of them were very hard to reach. Uh, they don't necessarily just have their own website and, and there's their contact form or anything. It's, um, it's often, it was, it was often a case of networking. I had to sort of be a bit of a detective and, and figure out, well, who knows who and whose friends, you know, which of these people might uh, have, have collaborated before and, and been at the same events and things like that. Um, uh, but yeah, as we went, uh, it got easier. And I think after a while, some of the people that were a bit reluctant to be interviewed or didn't reply, uh, when I sort of listed the people that had participated, then uh, that helped them realize that we were doing something worthy, something powerful and interesting and worth their time to, to be part of. 
You've also included quite a bit of animation in your film, um, Kim. Can you explain to film novices such as me and David why you use this artistic device? Sure. Well, one of our other main aims with the film, apart from that big break of uh, convention with with not covering a chronological um, sort of narrative, uh, another big aim was that we attract a really big audience um, because the film really is, it's not going to be effective as an impact film to add weight to the campaign for Julian's freedom unless a lot of people see it. And something I've noticed about political films is they have a very small audience, uh, but, you know, they often do well, like look at um, Citizen Four or Navalny, these are Academy Award winning films, but how many people watch them? Uh, you know, to, to, does the average Joe see the poster and see the advertisement and, and think, oh, I could enjoy that or find it interesting or even understand it. Um, yeah, not really. So, so we, we, we've looked for various ways to um, appeal to uh, uh, the majority, to, to a larger audience, a wider audience, um, audience of people that wouldn't normally see a political film. And one of the ways was animation. Um, so that, I think animations instantly sort of tell people, well, well this is not going to be just a cold, dry, serious political film with talking heads. Um, and But probably more important than that was animation allows you to go somewhere that you weren't able to go. We, we couldn't film Julian uh, at Belmarsh Prison we, and uh, we couldn't film inside the courthouse. UK courts don't allow uh, cameras, uh, unlike America. So our only option to cover, for example, the, the actual setting of Julian being in a glass dock at the beginning of the extradition trial, uh, held it in a glass uh, sort of room um, as if he was a terrorist, uh, as if he was going to endanger the court, you know, a bulletproof glass. Well, uh, the best way to do that was, was to draw it, to animate it. Um, so that was the first animation we did showing that predicament, that, that treatment, uh, which was just appalling. Um, I was shocked, really shocked when I first heard that, 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 it, you know, it just, it makes, it makes that court hearing really unfair and unbalanced that, that e e both parties don't sort of have an equal ability to actually, uh, communicate with each other. Um, and, and yeah, as we went, we, we came up with other things to animate. Um, uh, one of the, the main ones was, the uh, we wanted to do a brief sort of overview of the history of free speech. So um, we had two animators um, collaborate to sort of draw all of these beautiful scenes from history to highlight this progression of humanity through uh, thousands of years, uh, 5,000 years, um, you know, going all the way back to uh, the Magna Carta and the... Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And, and uh, so we sort of whizzed through history in three minutes, you know, sort of a fly-through helicopter effect uh, through all these uh, incredible scenes, just, just to remind people of the context in time. Here we are uh, in 2023 and with press freedom declining uh, and, and these, these rights that we fought for that over thousands of years, uh, they weren't given to us. You know, free speech wasn't handed on a plate. As soon as civilizations um, such as ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and, and uh, 
and so on. They, as soon as these large civilizations developed around religion, then you, you had a hierarchy uh, and you had people on top governing our speech, uh, controlling what we say and getting us in trouble and making threats if we, if we uh, say the wrong thing. And we've gradually, over these thousands of years, uh, literally fought for our rights and, and people have been persecuted, individuals, you know, from Galileo to Emmeline Pankhurst with the suffragettes and uh, 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 just so many figures that, I mean, we cover them in, the, in that um, animation and, um, and, and, and what you see is this sort of history repeats. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, I, when I researched that, when I was studying that, um, I, I just noticed so many similarities in, in the way that, um, you know, underground publishers a couple of hundred years ago, for example, were, um, you know, there's a, an example in the, in the animation of, of a chap who, who was an underground printer and, uh, in, in London, and he was putting out pamphlets against the kings, you know, sort of calling for the return of the ousted kings. Um, and when they, found, when they tracked him down, they basically just took him to the town square, hung him up and, and cut him in half and dragged him down the street. And then, they, and then the, the English government basically got rid of the printing laws because they realised, oh, you know what, we can, we can actually control the press just by scaring them. And here we are 200 years later, and they're doing the exact same thing with, with Julian Assange. Uh, the only difference being that the method has changed. Instead of a public square, now we have the internet. Now we have social media to spread these ideas. So you don't need to pull someone into the public square. And, uh, and in 2023, uh, in the Western world, we don't take a publisher, hang them up and cut them in half, uh, uh, hung, drawn and quartered. Um, so the way that they're doing away with Julian is actually a, a slow, prolonged um, uh, murder where they're just hoping that uh, if they keep him in solitary confinement and, uh, and for, for years and years and years uh, that he might um, pass away, he might be murdered. They're, just, they're doing it quietly. In, in the dark, you know, behind closed doors. Uh, it's, it, it's that kind of murder attempt that they're trying to do with Julian. And, I mean, uh, no surprise that he had a mini stroke last year um, and, and uh, continues to sort of have worse uh, health, health problems. Yeah, that, that kind of character assassination that you speak of in, in relation to Julian is just so common, isn't it, for people who speak up? You know, they find that they, often people with integrity, um, who then find themselves on the receiving end of malicious allegations. And I remember when yeah. the allegations of rape just, were made... Sorry to interrupt, but the yeah. I just remember the name of that fellow in our animation. It's William Anderton, the underground printer oh. 200 years ago in London. Um, that was hung, drawn, and quartered. And funnily enough, the other iron ironic thing is that the courthouse where they um, tried him is the same courthouse where they where they took Julian Assange, um, and and they used the same methods. They they had witnesses that lied, uh, which is also happening in Julian's case with the star witness uh, Siggy Thordarson. So uh, it, it's history repeats. 
Yeah, the, I think the the you know the, the allegations of rape, I think, really were hugely significant in terms of, you know, knocking Julian down and um, discrediting him to such a degree that you were left questioning his inter- integrity as a person. And I think you know you do attend to that process in terms of how it was a was a process. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, what one of the things that really comes through in the film is the is a palpable sense of hatred of Julian by, you know, some of these figures, these the states and what have you. And I wondered, you know, how do how does somebody cope with that level of hatred when they're treated in this kind of way? We can only imagine the turmoil, the 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 experience of Julian when all of that sort of uh, kicked off around 2010, as soon as he released, uh, all of those big releases happened in 20, uh, 2010 with the, the major ones, the Iraq war logs, Afghan war logs, and then Vault 7, which exposed that the CIA were spying on its own citizens, breaking the, uh, the constitution by doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, look, the, the, the whole plan to destroy Julian Assange, uh, from what I've uh, I've been told, um, uh, you know, is, is that there was a, a team, a work, a, a task force assigned to this plan to destroy, um, and we we have some evidence of that in the film, the Stratfor emails. Um, so they had you know a hundred people on the team to come up with a plan to just. Uh, get rid of Julian Assange and get rid of WikiLeaks and get rid of this, this sort of threat to their, to their ceaseless power. And, uh, and, and, you know, so what, like, how do you destroy somebody's character? Well, it's either going to be, um, yeah, it's going to be some sort of sordid accusation. Um, that's how you bring down somebody. So, um, and, and, you know, so accusing him, of rape was uh, kind of the worst possible thing that they could think of. I, I guess apart, uh, I suppose there's one more worse thing, but they they couldn't find any any way to sort of concoct that. So so they took advantage, uh, and all of this, by the way, is you know we we detail it briefly in the film, but more detail if you read Niels Melzer's excellent book, um, The Trial of Julian Assange. He he actually went through all of these documents um, from the Swedish allegations, from the Swedish police reports, found more than 40 examples of um, a violation of due process, including active manipulation of evidence. Uh, so it's, it's, ver- it's very well detailed in that book. Um, I can only give you a, a short summary, but, but they're basically just taken advantage of the fact that uh, two women... Um, had some liaisons with with him and uh they went to the police because julian which you know to to his fault he he wouldn't agree to have an hiv test uh, for whatever reason and and they just went they just went there to get help and one of them was only accompanying the other one uh and, and it was all just blown up out of that it was leaked straight from uh within 24 hours it was from the the police room which is meant to be a private, uh, you know, a, a confidential space uh, to the press and and onto all the front pages of the news around the world. Um, and, and you imagine how devastating that would be to someone that has um, worked so hard to 
um, bring us information, uh, useful information to that, that can end wars, that can end corruption and end the ceaseless murder of, uh, of genocides of, of different countries and different people. Um, someone that's worked so hard to, to make a difference in the world, a positive difference, to have their character just demolished and also it almost destroyed this uh, wonderful organization that serves uh, society serves it does an incredible service to humanity um, being being wikileaks with with showing us what's really going on thank you and listeners might be interested to read about garrick and books whistleblowers retaliation checklist which identifies all kinds of strategies that are used to retaliate against whistleblowers and jackie garrick was herself a, a u.s military whistleblower but one of the strategies they identify is the deployment of physical and emotional violence and 14% of their sample had experienced physical or sexual violence and 75% lived in fear of this happening. Now your film shows how relevant this is to Julian, doesn't it? Yes. So in Julian's case, uh, he's been detained arbitrarily, which means, um, you know, in, in a unfair sort of unwarranted or, or illogical way. Uh, so arbitrarily detained for 12 and a half years. Um, from the initial uh, house arrest and then he was forced to seek uh, asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy of London where he was there for uh, almost seven years and then now he's been at Belmarsh prison for for more than four years four and a half years Um, and so uh, you know that takes an incredible toll the the lack of sunlight um, the difficulty in, in exercising um, not to mention the stress or the fear uh, related to, you know, being pursued by the, the, the biggest empire that has ever existed on the earth. Um, and uh, so what we document in the film is the psychological torture that he's endured. And, and this is not speculation. Um, in 2019, May 2019, the Special Rapporteur on Torture uh, at the time from the United Nations, Nils Melzer, went to visit Julian in Belmarsh Prison with two doctors, uh, Paul Perez Sales and uh, Duarte uh, Nono, who's uh, another doctor. So they went to the prison and assessed him under the Istanbul Protocol on torture. And they did an assessment, a very thorough assessment for a few hours. And the determination of Nils Melzer, uh, who is an expert on torture, that, that's his role at the, at the UN at the time. Uh, his assessment was that Julian is a victim of psychological torture. And in his words, psychological torture is by no means torture light. So it's not any less uh, devastating or impactful than physical torture. Um, so that's what Julian has been subjected to. And that's what they've done to him. Um, it's, just, I mean, it's beyond appalling and disgusting. It's, it's into some other realm that that they could do that to a person. To, I mean, you gotta, you gotta look at this situation. Like being in, in a, a, a tiny cell, maximum security prison, the harshest prison in UK, amongst uh, people that are there for for terrible crimes, murders, and so on. Um, and it's, it's isolation, it's 22 hours a day of, of uh, solitary confinement. 
But I think the worst thing about it is not knowing how long you're there for. Because even a murderer knows their sentence. So if someone is in there for 10 years, you know, 15, 20 years, whatever, all for life, uh, they know the situation. But, but Julian still doesn't know what, what's going on, uh, how long he's going to be there for. Do you know, Kim, so he's housed in segregation. Do you know if that's something that he's wanted himself or is that how the prison system has treated him? No, no. Since since he was arrested, well, then he doesn't really get any decisions, not even over his bodily integrity. So um, he was vaccinated without uh, any choice in the matter. Um, he's given medications. Uh, he's He's drugged up and I don't think he has choice over that um, you know when he appeared in court he, he, he actually couldn't appear in court because he was uh, heavily medicated um, and uh, and he's been treated as a as if he is one of the worst criminals of the of, of, of the UK uh, and that's why he's in a maximum security prison in isolation Um so that he can't interact with people. It is just another form of torture. It's a yeah. tiny cell, um, 22, 22 hours a day of isolation, one hour for exercise, and I, and the rest of the time he might get to have a, a meeting with uh, or a phone chat with his wife or with his family or, or, or lawyers. Um, so very limited visiting uh, visit, visitation rights. Um, and and it's just very little freedom, and that's all intentional. That's all designed to scare journalists all around the world uh, to to basically terrorise um, the press and the future would be whistleblowers, and make everyone scared that you know if you publish something, publish the crimes of the powerful, we're basically going to crush you. Yeah, we've both we've both worked for many years in prisons, and obviously, ordinarily, there's a desire to get people out of segregation. Um, and there are some people who do choose to retreat there. But um, you know, it seems again, it's a misuse and abuse of of process and the system. And in the same way that your film shows, as you said, you know, he had to kneel down to talk through glass to his lawyers who were alongside the prosecution, um, so not able to have a private conversation so there's lots of examples in your film of how he's denied any right to um fairness in terms of how he's that's how right. he's been treated and, and uh, another another just awful example it's it's not nice to hear all of this but it's important uh, before they made the announcement about that his appeal um that he'd lo- that he'd lost the the his uh, legal team had had uh, basically lost the extradition case and and then it was passed to um, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. She she uh, rubber-stamped it basically for, to approve his extradition. So before all of that went ahead, uh, was, was basically um, processed, uh, the day before that, he was taken to uh, basically a, um, I'm not sure what they call it, a, a panic room type of thing. He was, he was stripped uh, naked, um, with the just you know, with the this justification that he, he might be a threat to himself, um, and they also did that um, before some of the court hearings that they that they just stripped him naked. 
Um, and yeah, it's all just a, a, appalling, especially for someone that's committed no crime, done a service to humanity, and is 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 a gentle intellectual uh, idealist, uh, and and on top of that, a, a, quite a genius. Uh, you know, somebody that that has solved a big problem um, in the world, and uh, you know, just I mean, the the whole situation is just rife with uh, abusive process, um, and the, the, they continue to get away with it because not enough people are aware of it or, or speak up or do anything, and that's that's why we need to create more awareness. Thank you. So uh, I was just thinking while you were talking that um, it goes right back, doesn't it? Because I think Julian has been defined by the United States as a, as a terrorist. And once that has been done, then all the kind of treatments that you just uh, described you know, flow on from that, whatever the reality of the situation is. Anyway... I'm just thinking about uh, the, the film again. You, you focus, obviously, WikiLeaks is a huge amount of information and material, and you, you choose a couple of uh, segments to uh, focus on. And one particularly harrowing part of the film is the footage of unarmed civilians going about their business, being murdered uh, by American military who request permission under the spurious you know, request that they're carrying arms, which they clearly aren't. And this, this kind of material is enormously powerful because it, it conveys some sort of sense just of power, the kind of power which states can uh, exercise over a distance. Um, but how, why did you decide to use that particular bit of uh, material in the film? Right, okay, so WikiLeaks uh, has released over 10 million documents from 212 countries, basically every country of the world. Uh, but the collateral murder video, as it's known, or, or in other circle, circles it's called the, uh, the Iraq air attack, uh, is, I mean, it's one of the most, or maybe the most powerful video ever of a war. It's, it's really, uh, you can't really... Uh, overstate how uh, confronting and important this this video is um, so you know obviously it's a documentary and it's on a screen and it's visual so uh, that was an obvious choice to have something visual rather than something that we explain um, through documents um, although we, we do briefly mention other some of the other releases um, I didn't want to only um, cover mm -hmm. The, the collateral murder video um, but for those who haven't seen that that uh, video it I mean look it's a it's a harsh watch and uh, you know it, whenever we have these kind this kind of material in a film whether it's about the treatment of animals or plastic in the stomach of a, of a turtle uh, it's a question of well is it is it important for us to see it in order to solve the problem and and in the case of collateral murder video, I, I, I firmly believe that everyone, at least over the age of 18, should watch it. Um, and, and hence we put it into the film. Um, and basically the way that we present it in the film is, is longer than what you, if you have seen the footage, typically people have, 
you know, the small, maybe 1% of the world that has seen that video, usually they've just seen five or 10 seconds of it quickly on the news. That's how I saw it. I, I remember seeing it in 2010 on the news one night. Didn't know what it was about, didn't uh, uh, know that it was to do with WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. So if people can connect that footage with Julian and with this whole indictment, because it is, it is uh, the indictment is largely based on the Iraq war logs, the material that Chelsea Manning provided to WikiLeaks. Uh, people need to connect those dots and realise that this is the reason, um, the main reason perhaps that they're going after him is because of that footage. It's so embarrassing for the US government, for the US army. It's a war crime. The people that perpetrate it still haven't been taken to justice. And uh, so we put it into the film. Um, we were also provided some footage of, uh, which is very valuable as a supplement to that, to that actual video is the interviews with some of the victims, um, the, the daughter, uh, sorry, the, the, the son of the, the man that was killed in, in the attack on his van. Um, you know, that, you know, to summarize it and without giving it away too much because people should come and see the film, but, but essentially, uh, it's, it's, uh, 2007, um, in New Baghdad, um, there's, around a group of around 20 people walking down the street above you have a u.s apache helicopter they suspect that two of the men are carrying weapons and they wait for the right moment and they basically yeah shoot them down um a, a rain of bullets uh and and what's revealed is that they weren't actually carrying guns they were carrying cameras and two of the men that were killed were reuters journalists they were cameramen, so it's an attack on civilians. There was no weapons. They, they didn't engage, so they broke the rules of engagement and they essentially just murdered 20 civilians, uh, and then they covered it up. They didn't. Um, they lied. The U.S. lied about what actually happened, even though there was investigations from, from Reuters and other, other media. And then three years later, uh, Chelsea Manning, who was working in the US Army, uh, saw the footage and she decided that regardless of the consequences, she would put that out to the public because we need to see it. We need to see what's going on. What are the governments doing with our money and without our knowledge? And she took that risk. She um, shared it with WikiLeaks and uh, then we have had the ability to have that insight and it's changed the world, uh, whether you know it or not. Even if you haven't seen the footage, it's changed the world. Um, so the more people that see it, the more change there can be. And uh, it's just disgusting that um, 13 years, well, uh, what is it, 16 years later, there's still no justice for those victims, for those 20 people, for those kids that were in the van, um, nothing was done. I mean, they didn't even help them, no financial assistance, just nothing. Yeah, that's truly uh, shocking. And why haven't journalists done more to uncover this and indeed to assist you know, Julian? I mean, you'd think 
the way in which they all got their fingers burned over the Iraq wars that they'd kind of be going all out for it. But it's almost as if they're complicit in in the uh, ongoing uh, mistreatment. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we what we've seen over these twelve and a half years that Julian's been persecuted and tortured uh, is and arbitrarily detained is is that the, the basically a a mainstream media blackout until something escalates, until something worse is done to him, and then they cover it. So they're really just playing along to the tune of uh, of this. Uh, this base, this plan to basically scapegoat Julian Assange uh, to ward off other journalists from exposing their dirty laundry. Um, so they're just uh, these mainstream outlets have done an incredible disservice to their own their own profession, uh, and it's I, I think it's quite uh, uh, ironic and even humorous if it wasn't so um, tragic and dire. Is that now we have AI? coming in and replacing those kinds of journalists, um, making their, their jobs obsolete. Those, those types of journalists that, that uh, when they're not putting out lies, they're just regurgitating government handouts. And now you have uh, smarter com- computers that are smarter than them who can just take their jobs. Um, but what the world needs is real journalism. We need to know the truth. And this is another side to WikiLeaks is that it's 100% accurate stuff. Uh, they've never been, had to redact, uh, retract anything that they've put out because they did the research, they did the due diligence, um, and, uh, and, and, and did you know, whatever uh, they had to do to, to ensure that they're putting out accurate documents. Unlike uh, your average newspaper that, that basically every week they're redacting something. Um, retracting something that they've published and so julian assange with wikileaks took journalism to another level it's really a neo-journalism uh and so that then you have this smear that that some other journalists like to put out which is that he's not a real journalist no he's not he's not the same journalist that that your average journalist he's a very very successful journalist um that has taken has reinvented journalism um why do they do that yeah because i guess they they feel like they're supposed to conform to the the sort of the status quo of um of ripping into julian assange throwing him under the bus to the detriment of their their own profession they should be standing up um however uh in in just in the last year we have seen those major newspapers that that at the time they were the ones that that profited and benefited from publishing this material um the new york times de spiegel le monde uh, a couple of other newspapers finally came out and sort of banded together and said this is this persecution of julian assange is a threat to our industry uh it's it's wrong and we're against it um but you know it's it's yeah, I, I guess it's a case of better late than never. Just conscious of the time, and um, and and so just, but just before we finish, I w- wondered how listeners can watch your film. Yes, so where we're at is that the film is showing in festivals around the world over the next uh, two or three months. Uh, when uh, then we will 
plan to get it out into cinemas uh, in in the Western countries uh, very soon, as soon as we can. We're talking to distributors at the moment. So we want to get the film out as quick as possible. Uh, we're not going to do the usual thing of uh, staying on the festival circuit for a long time. Um, and uh, they should just, uh, yeah, follow our social media on Twitter, um, the Trustful Julian Assange documentary on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Telegram, and uh, there'll be regular updates of the festival screenings in many different countries, as well as the the coming cinema release. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking to you today, Kim. Thanks for giving us your time. Thanks a lot, Kim. Great to meet you. Some of the facts in that film, which aren't really that surprising, but they are quite shocking, but... um, the US has been at war for 235 of its 247 years existence. I just think that's incredible. And been responsible for 20 million deaths. And they have 750 overseas military bases. I just think colossal. It's astounding, isn't it? And, uh... Yeah, it is. And some of the other figures that were quite shocking in the, in the film are... Um, trying to find where, where I've written them down. There, there were 3 million deaths in Iraq, 80% of those were civilian, 5 million orphans and 9 million refugees as a consequence. 